Hi there! Another dishcast coming at you. Today, we have someone we've been really looking forward to having, at least I have anyway, uh, as our guest this week. It's Fiona Hill, whom you may remember from the, the hearings on the Ukraine scandal in which President Trump attempted to leverage national security to get some slime produced against his opponent. And Fiona Hill actually was there for the call and, <laughs> and was gobsmacked by it. And we'll use the word gobsmacked because Fiona is also from England and she's an English American, as I am. Um, she's a foreign policy expert. She was an intelligence analyst under George Bush and Obama. And then she served under Trump as senior director for European and Russian affairs on the National Security Council. Now she's a senior fellow at Brookings. She has a new book, There's Nothing For You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century. And she also co-authored a book about the Russian president called Mr. Putin, Operative in the Kremlin. So we have a lot to talk about. And Fiona knows a hell of a lot. But I want to start with just, we grew up in England in the 70s, right? Well, the late, the 60s, into the yeah. 70s, in our teen years. Uh, when you look back at that, that era, I just actually watched Belfast. I don't know whether you saw that film. Amazing. I thought it was a beautiful film. And, but what, I, what really captured me was just the atmosphere, working class atmosphere, an Irish Catholic. Or the, it reminded me of parts of my family. My grandmother was totally like the grandmother Judy Tench was. And there was a freewheeling chaos to the neighborhood that nonetheless was actually, when I look back, I think, however irritated I was by all of it at the time, it was probably good to grow up with a community like that, knowing everyone on the street, knowing everybody's kids and so on. But you, I grew up, and Americans need to understand the differences. I grew up in a small town in Sussex, right down in the south of England. And Fiona grew up in the north of England, which is, you know, not that far away, but, but they are different worlds. I grew up in a very Tory, rural neighborhood, and Fiona grew up in a very labor period at a time, actually, when there was huge conflict in Britain, a very polarized situation in the 70s. So if you want to tell me about growing up, you, you're a county Durham. They tell Americans what County Durham is like. Yeah, well, thanks very much, Andrew. And yes, you know, absolutely. I have seen Belfast. I also thought it was very interesting that it was mostly in black and white. Because yes. funnily enough, I kind of remember my childhood in black and white as well at a lot of times. Mostly because, you know, for the longest time, I actually didn't have a TV. And when I first did, it was in black and white. So all of my earliest memories of children's programs were black and white. I can remember being quite shocked by, you know, colour and colour images and the way that those form memories I'll help you form memories later on. And in many respects, the northeast of England was very much like Kenneth Branagh's Belfast, in the sense that it was basically a working class region, just as Belfast that uh, Kenneth Branagh describes was dominated by the working class. I mean, I think his, his father was a plumber, a joiner, who actually had such a hard time finding work in Belfast at that period that he actually had to go across the pond, or at least the Irish um, Sea, and work in England, and was basically sending remittances back to his family, effectively working abroad on the mainland in, in many respects. And in the northeast of England, as I was growing up, I was born in 65, I think Kenneth Branagh's 1960, so he's a little bit older. But it's that whole period where the local economies of these working class, heavy industrial dominated regions start to kind of fall off a cliff. County Durham was dominated by coal mining, but also shipbuilding like Belfast uh, on, on the coast, places like Hartlepool and Sunderland and 
further down places like Teesside, Middlesbrough, you know, for example, and up further up in the northeast, Newcastle and all of those big port cities that were famous in the days of the Industrial Revolution. It was also the railways. It was uh, these, you know, kind of big steelworks. Everything, though, was British coal, British steel, British shipbuilders, because the whole industry was dominated by nationalised industries, very different from the rest of Britain, but similar again to Belfast. Because after World War II, the private sector had such a hard time rebuilding, having had Britain cut off for more than five years from the rest of the global economy. And so the government had to step in for that wartime recovery. And then there was also the creation of the National Health Service. And so in my town, if people lost their jobs in the nationalised industries if they, as they were becoming more unprofitable by the 1960s, they often went to work like my father did in the National Health Service. My dad went from being a coal miner to then trying to work in a shipyard uh, while they were all um, were closing down to work in a steelworks and then work in a brickworks. And he eventually ended up as a porter on the lowest rung of the economic ladder in the local hospital, where he met my mother, who was a midwife. And, you know, as I said, my childhood really kind of played out an awful lot like Kenneth Branagh's in some uh, respects. Because by the time, you know, I've really coming of age, you know, by the time I'm nine, let's say, which Kenneth Branagh is in that 1969 Belfast, the troubles are already well underway, which he describes in their emergence in Belfast. And they did transfer themselves to mainland Britain. It wasn't just confined to Northern Ireland. I mean, you would remember this growing up as well, particularly given your family background. In the coal works, uh, the coal mines, rather, the steel works, the shipyards, the railway works of Northern England in that nationalised industry, a lot of Irish came to work there as well as Welsh and Scots. My family had heritage from all of that. And you start to see the kind of the same splits of the troubles playing out in families and also in those neighbourhoods. And, you know, I remember very much the same kind of debate, that inner debate that the the character in Belfast who's the stand-in for Kenneth Branagh has about how do you tell a Catholic and a Protestant from each other? That's that wonderful moment in the film. It's like, well, do you tell it by their names, about how they look? How would you know? What does that mean? What's the difference? I had those same questions in my childhood as well, wondering why all of this really mattered. You know, and were, why you, were, you, were, you, were you Catholic or Protestant? We, we, we were well, I, I was actually technically Protestant, but, you know, I say technically because, you know, my mother's family were Presbyterians. And in fact, they were from the same United Reformed streak that Kenneth Branagh's family are in, you know, with the Reverend mm. Ian Paisley, who is, oh you know, goodness. sort of featured in a kind of biopic sense in, you know, with a hellfire and brimstone speech in Belfast. But many of my father's family who were Methodists, had married Catholics. And so they were very large extended families in the north of England, just like in that community. Everyone's related to each other. And if they're not directly related, they're related through family ties of multiple generations growing up uh, together and working together. Everybody knows everybody. And you always call someone aunt or uncle because the assumption is they probably are if they're older than you. You know, because somebody might be your second cousin. You just never know this. On my street, every single mother was auntie. Yes, exactly. <laughs> auntie Chris, auntie this. Everyone was sort of their aunt. And they, they, and also, of course, like in Belfast, we played everywhere. We were out in the fields. We were out in the woodlands. We were yep. playing tennis on the streets. I mean, I was a very rural outlook. So, so it was, but we were totally, my mother would be like in the hot summer holidays, just get out of the house and see me, see me at dinner time. We also were... Yeah. We were mixed. We were mixed family. We were. My father was a, a Protestant slash agnostic. My mother yeah. was an absolutely fanatical Catholic. So we were brought up 
fanatically Catholic. And we knew our friends who were all Catholics, but we weren't segregated in quite that way. For, for my generation in England, they, and you know, there were a few jibes about being a Catholic. There was a sort of prejudice against the Irish for being stupid and, and that kind of stuff. But it wasn't that bad, to be honest. But you go to Glasgow, for example. Absolutely. Not that far from Belfast, really. Yep. Same, same conflicts. So there you are. You're the son, the daughter, excuse me, of, 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 a, of a, a, a hospital worker and a midwife. And what are you going to do? So you take the 11 plus. I wanted to just, the 11 plus was an exam, just to tell them there. It was a, a, basically an IQ test at around the age of 11, where kids were streamed into a selective school, like a kind of magnet school kind of situation, to translate it, or just went to the local school that was the public high school, comprehensive. And I was confused because you, you took the 11 plus and you did incredibly well at it, but you didn't go to a grammar school. And I'm just, can you tell me what happened there? Like, why did that not happen? Because they just started to be phased out. In fact, right. I was the last group in my town to take the 11 plus. And by that point, the grammar schools had basically been transformed into comprehensive schools that you mm. mentioned before. I mean, as you're just a little bit ahead of me in the academic track, you would have still had the grammar school system, but they're phased out in different places at different times. It wasn't uniform across the United Kingdom. And in fact, some places did maintain a grammar school and turned them into kind of minimal fee-paying grammar schools in some of the local education authorities. But in Bishop Auckland, the town that I grew up in, they'd phase them out. The boys and girls grammar schools that had been separated before disappeared. In one case, in you know my hometown, the boys grammar school, King James the first school turned into a comprehensive school, but that was at one side of the town. And I ended up going to the comprehensive school the other side of the town. There's actually the railway tracks in between that had been the old secondary modern or vocational school and, and didn't really have the facilities and certainly not the academic facilities for you know the full curriculum. And I was offered a place initially on the basis of the 11 plus to the local private girls school in Durham, Durham High School, which, you know, was selective fee paying school. And they offered me a full scholarship. The problem was that it didn't cover all of the things that go with going to a private school, equipment, you know, books, school trips, transportation. You know, that wouldn't be subsidized by my um, local education authority because, you know, I had the opportunity to go to a, another school, a, a public, you know, non-feeing. Of course, in Britain, public school means private school, so it's very confusing for Americans. But the state school, let's just say, yeah. uh, the local state school. And my parents just couldn't afford it. You know, my dad's Having been a coal miner, they didn't have any savings. He got this job as a hospital porter. It was literally the lowest paid job that was out there, along with grave diggers and, you know, other, you know, manual labor jobs. My mother, you know, had, had been a midwife, but when my sister came along, she'd stopped work because there wasn't any affordable childcare. There wasn't uh, childcare that was covered. And she, you know, kind of was working intermittently. We just didn't have the funding for it. So I went to the local comprehensive school. And of course, it was streamed. But the resources of this school, you know, were pretty inadequate to that at that period. So that was kind of really that juncture, that that change, that transformation in the British education system that I came along too late yeah. to the grammar school system. In but my, in a way, in, too early on a comprehensive school system to have, you know, really taken hold in my town and to have, you know, fully transformed itself. When you look back at the abolition of the grammar schools, do you do you have any regret about it? 
Yes and no. I mean, I think, you know, that, you know, opportunity for people to have a really good academic education sort of disappeared in in some cases, in some regions, for example, because the comprehensive school system, which was very much based on the local tax base, and if the bottom had fallen out of it, like it had in Bishop Auckland, a lot of County Durham, because so many people became unemployed with the mass privatisation of the heavy nationalised industry in the Thatcher era, you know, from 79 into the 80s. I mean, that did take away some of those opportunities, but also they were extremely restrictive. You know, and as we know, people mature in different ways. I was a bit of a child prodigy, as you probably were as well, you know, and I did extraordinarily well at the 11 plus, a bit of a shock to myself as well as to anybody else. It was a total shock to me. I remember at one point in elementary school, I'm like, we're going to do a test today. I didn't tell me what the test was about. We all sat down and, and did it. And then I remember being brought in by my headmaster. But parents were, I was like, what have I done wrong? I some, I, what am I being asked? To go? And they were like, we've got this score that we don't know what to do with. This kid has got to go somewhere. And um, anyway, in my case, I was then assigned to the Catholic one, which when I went right, to... Right, which is a really good school, yeah. yeah. Well, there was, a, there, was a, there was a John Fisher School in London, and then there was a Reigate Grammar. And in, in yeah. nearby and I went to Reigate Grammar in the end because I preferred it and I would get on the public bus every morning the 428 and the 410 and in a weird weird way Keir Starmer would get on two stops oh down, the, down the bus <laughs> so and we would spend we were notorious for spending every morning yelling at each other on the school bus on the on the 428 bus because he was a super lefty i was super like thatcher right at that point and we went at it every day for five years on on the bus and and we sat next to each other in the high school actually the grammar school like starmer sullivan is alphabetically the next so that's a weird part of mine and and, and of oh, course it's I, amazing it is it's really it's really fun it's Kier is a by the way I mean, he's he's labor leader. I don't agree with him about a bunch of stuff, but he's a fantastic person. I, I love the guy, and we are still friends. And he's he's a good bloke. He's he's got a real heart. Yeah, and he's got a real uh, integrity. That's a really great story. Of despite your know, you know, different political perspectives and you know worldviews, you have this whole connection, and we're able to talk to each other. Oh actually, well, I mean, talk to was a little euphemism. Well, we can't talk at each other, perhaps, but you know you've still um, you know stayed in in good terms. And look, I mean, comprehensive schools did have these advantages that they. The one of the things with grammar schools is they stream people out. They would separate people in families, and set people on life paths where they would never intertwine again and plus people some people are late bloomers I mean, and in many respects it didn't give people a second chance i mean i have a lot of friends who really came into their own 13 15 16 you know but by that time if they'd been in a grammar school they would have been set off in a different direction right and, but you, you know, seem to be like an example of someone who's just clearly ability natural ability it didn't really matter some people argue it doesn't matter what schools you send kids to if they're that smart they're going to do well you clearly did incredibly well and then you end up tell me the next how did you actually come to america well i i got um, the opportunity to go to st andrews university in scotland which obviously opened an amazing amount of doors and the one thing in county durham was that they really maintained even at the hardest times their cultural and educational budgets and as you might you know, recall, irrespective of income, if you were good enough to get into a university or a, the day polytechnic, you know, kind of a more business orientated or technically oriented college, your local education um, authority would pay for you if you couldn't afford it. And so I had a full ride to St Andrews University in Scotland. And that's what really opened up all of the other doors. I got a scholarship to go to study in what was then the Soviet Union in 1987, 1988 from the British Council. And while I was there, I had a little bit 
like your strange encounters, although these were natural with Keir Starmer, I kept running into people in Moscow who had all of these connections. And I, I got a stringer job with NBC News during the Gorbachev-Reagan summit. I got to hear Ronald Reagan speak at Moscow State University during his visit to Moscow. I arrived there just as Gorbachev and Reagan are signing the INF Treaty, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, ending this you know, really uh, critical phase in the cold of the standoff of Euro missiles and you know, many on-the-brink confrontations, the real fear of nuclear war that shaped your childhood and mine, and here we are back at it again. And I met, just in passing, a professor who was uh, there, basically an advisor for um, NBC News, as I was attempting to make a drip coffee for Maria Shriven, being British, I had absolutely no idea how this artifact <laughs> to the same thing worked. I was like, where's the Nescafe package where I can just fall in and, you know, I can make a tea. But this thing, you know, I had, I had the water flowing everywhere. I didn't know what to do with the paper. I had no idea that this was you know, some kind of filter. And I was burning things. I made a horrible mess. And this guy comes in, what are you doing? What, what is going on here? And he wanted coffee. And I ruined everything and spoiled all the coffee. So he makes coffee and asks me what am I doing? And I say, I'm a British student, explains everything, you know, because I'm so idiotic with this coffee machine. And then he tells me that there are fellowships to the United States. And I was like, really? And how do I go about applying to that? So he connects me with, he says, go see the cultural attaché at the British Embassy, who I happen to know, a gentleman named Michael Bird, who was in his first assignment at the British Embassy. And it turns out that he's just had a Kennedy scholarship to study at Harvard in you know, previous years, the same scholarships that you and I and others, you know, end up coming to Harvard. And he says he'll help me. Uh, he'll help me apply. He'll put me in touch with the attache and his counterpart. He was sort of a deputy attache at the um, US embassy. And they'll help me walk me through the process. And so I end up, I mean, shockingly, getting a scholarship to Harvard University. I mean, I'm sure you felt the same way. I was just, as you said, gobsmacked. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe this turned out and all because I couldn't make coffee. No, look, I... It was an amazing period for me, too. I mean, growing up, I mean, no one in my family had been to college before. And, you know, there were books in our house. But suddenly I'm ushered into Oxford for all things paid, everything paid for. And then I did the same thing. I just applied for a fellowship. Didn't know whether I really wanted to do it. And then I got it. And I was like, well, I got to go. What was your, when you came, first came to America, was it the first time here when you came over to go to Harvard? It was. Yeah, I'd never been before. I mean, my my father was just obsessed with American culture. Really? Um, popular culture, music, jazz, the blues. You know, we used to listen to things like Ella Fitzgerald and Nat King Cole and Nina Simone and, you know, all of this all the time. He'd spent his whole time, you know, in the 40s growing up his mining village, going to Saturday matinees. He'd seen like every Western and every, you know, kind of Hollywood big, you know, band musical there was because... For the kids of coal miners, they gave them, you know, these free Saturday matinees. That's kind of what's on the local cinema. And the, the town that he grew up I went to edge, those too. I went to those yeah. too. <laughs> they, they had all of these, you know, it was actually one of the modern um, cinema. I mean, amazingly. And they would they would go there. And so my, my dad's favorite, you know, uh, films, everything. And by the time we got a television, it was color. <laughs> Eventually, <laughs> when I was like already in my teens, you know, I'd sit with my dad watching all these Saturday films. So I 
thought I knew the United States, but I had like the weirdest, you know, Miami Vice, Starsky and Hutch, you know, all these kind of really weird images of it. And I get to America, I had no idea what to expect. There's a really embarrassing story on my first night at Harvard in these dorms. I hear a car backfiring and I threw myself to the floor thinking there's a shootout in Harvard Yard. And people came in and said, what are you doing? I banged my head off the floor, jumped quietly to my bed. I said, there's a shootout, there's shooting in the street. They said, it's a car backfiring. I was like, what? And I'd never heard a car backfiring because my family had never owned a car. I just never heard a car backfiring. It was one of these big souped up, when I looked out the window, idiotically, I see you know, one of these souped up Mustangs. You know, I'd never seen a car like that in my life. And it was just doing the bump, 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 you know, backfiring the whole time because somebody was revving it in the parking lot. And of course, it hadn't, you know, sort of set off yet. I just had no idea what to expect at all. It was just so completely different from what I'd expected, you know, if you're growing up in on a way. In westerns in and you know dukes of hazard and you know kind of starsky and hutch and things you just don't know what you're getting yourself into right no i feel the same way <laughs> exactly the same way when i first got there I, I i remember there was a moment when i was like i feel like i'm in a movie because everyone around yes. me is talking yeah. like they talk in a movie with the same accent i never <laughs> i was just sort of this is what people in america don't understand i think fully appreciate just how powerful American culture is popularly across the world. So if you grow up in a small town in the north, northeast of England or you grow up in a small town in the south of England, we are nonetheless given an education in American popular culture, unlike anybody in America would have with any other foreign country. We, we grow up partly American. But then I had to unlearn everything I thought I had grown up understanding about America when I realized, oh, this is actually a much more sophisticated and complicated place. I exactly. was... I was and this is a, just very personal. I was intoxicated with freedom. I, I, I got away from my family, which was a really not a great situation. I had a, a tough, difficult family life. And so getting away was huge. And then I also had my own sexual orientation questions. And I had to go into a new country was a way to like start over. So I had a very almost uh, stereotypical American experience. And I wanted to be an American. And I, I decided, fuck it, I'm going to leave all that behind. And I had chafed up against what you talk about class. Right. Certainly, certainly in Oxford, where you're suddenly, whoa, I, I, these accents I don't understand, these people I don't really know, the whole sub whole class structure I didn't fully understand. And America struck me immediately as not having that. It did not, I did not feel that when I met someone, they'd say they'd immediately understand from my accent where I was from. They would ask me where I was from and what school I went to. And within the first few minutes of a conversation, you'd be pegged to an almost you know, exactly. accurate point. In the, and they could tell a lower middle class from an upper middle class accent with extraordinary finesse. So getting away from that was phenomenally liberating. Because part of, part of the problem with that is that it's not just that, that there's a class system, but that you internalize hatreds and prejudices uh, in line with it. You, you become hate, hate these upper class people as well. I remember swearing at the Bullingdon people and hating those people and thinking Boris Johnson was an idiot and all the rest of it. But anyway, tell me, now I'm blathering about me. Tell me about your, how did you? Exactly I mean, I'm listening to this and thinking that's, you know, my experience with obviously a few differences, but, you know, kind of pretty much the same thing. I mean, after I you know, got over this initial like, whoa, it's not at all like all this you know, popular culture that I've been absorbing. I was just really struck by how complex the place was as well. There was kind of I thought I kind of had a, a general sense of American history, realized I didn't, you know, that I, there was an awful lot to learn. But I, I did feel completely liberated in that opportunity to reinvent. 
I mean, there was, just as you, you know, were talking about accent, for example, I had a pretty notable north of east of England working class accent. And when I came to the United States, although people weren't really following what I was saying, they would say, oh, I can sit and listen to you all day. You sound like the Queen. And I was like, I absolutely do not sound like the Queen. <laughs> you know, I'm like, oh my God, the Queen would die at the thought of, you know, the thoughts of my accent. You know, like, no way. But then I thought to myself, wow, this is just incredibly liberating. I can, you know, I can just be myself. I don't have to change my accent even, you know, because there was all that pressure in the UK to become you know, something else to become middle class if you got an education and, and the way that you outlook, the way that you spoke, the way that you you dressed. You even were supposed to sort of change the things you liked, the people you, you hung around with. It was almost like you had to leave your old life behind. It was also, it was almost like, you know, joining into the, some, you know, ancient system of the Janissaries or something, or, you know, kind of being plucked, you know, in the Ottoman Empire from your obscure village and, you know, kind of brought into the sort of centre and transformed into something else in UK society, if you wanted to kind of make it. And, you know, coming from the northeast of England, you saw plenty of people in, you know, acting roles, comedy or something like this, but you didn't really see them in business. At least if there were, you wouldn't know because you couldn't tell from the accent or certainly not in politics either. I mean, yes, there'd been Harold Wilson, you know, the prime minister who'd come from Yorkshire and, you know, come from, you know, reputedly working class background, but had gone to grammar school. But, you know, although he had still had traces of his Yorkshire accent, he'd become definitely middle class and part of this political class by the time he you know, rose to the level of uh, prime minister. Same with later on with John Major, for example, whose dad was what bus driver, you know, obviously from pretty humble background. But you just rarely saw, particularly for women, you very rarely saw you know, anyone from that kind of background. And if they had been, they'd been completely transformed and had a makeover like Margaret Thatcher herself ended up having. And I just never felt comfortable in my own skin once I left Bishop Auckland and started to kind of move out in, in the United Kingdom. In the United States, I was just accepted for that. But I did notice, as you must have done right away, because you arrived there when you were in the middle of it, race in America. And there was accent and there was discrimination. It was just very different. And as we arrive in, in Boston, I mean, you arrive a little before I did, I come right at the end of it, there's the busing of people across the public schools. They attempt to desegregate the Boston public schools. And Boston itself, outside of Harvard, was a pretty segregated, a pretty differentiated town. I was kind of a bit surprised the first time, you know, I walked out of Harvard Yard and started to go on a foot, you know, kind of walk across Cambridge into Somerville, into Boston itself, how the neighbourhoods changed, some of the ethnic neighbourhoods, Portuguese, Italian, there was a lot of Haitian immigrants coming in. But Boston was also hitting hard times. When we arrived there in the 1980s, the um, manufacturing regions around Harvard Yard, Medford, Alston, Somerville, all of the factories there were closing down. And people were trying to you know, make ends meet just like they had been in the northeast of England or in, you know, kind of your you know, home area as well. And I was immediately struck by that, that there was a lot going on. And a lot of it was quite similar to where I was was coming from. And there was complexity there. It wasn't true that, you know, kind of America was a land of opportunity for absolutely everyone. And, and you, not everyone could reinvent themselves. I mean, I could, but, you know, not everybody else in America could. And there was all kinds of hidden layers that I wasn't really aware of. And Harvard itself was grappling with that in the time, you know, that we first got there. And it, when, it was if you've been a, in a very interesting period. Yeah. 
I, it, I, the one thing that struck me was that from Oxford, for example, and you're probably from St. Andrews, there were basically no racial minorities, particularly. No, I mean, was, no, I mean, very, very few, yeah. grow up without any real interaction. Harvard was really kind of remarkable. And it, when I got there, I was like, wow, all these different people with different voices. I found it intoxicating. I loved it. I yes, lived I at, yeah. I got an apartment next to Roxbury, just down nice. the far south end, like near Boston South City end, Hospital, yeah, yeah. just to the border between South End and Roxbury in the 80s, which was, I know I had this ability when I was in my 20s to find apartments in these scariest places <laughs> and be completely oblivious to it. I was like, they were cheap and it was kind of nice. And then you realize, oh, there's a dead body in the alleyway behind this this month. I should have thought about that. But I didn't have any of those antennae because I was, I was English. I didn't know. I, 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 I wasn't. But anyway, um, tell me how you and why you became fascinated with Russia in that period. Now, obviously, when we were at Harvard, the, the Cold War Russia was a huge subject. Anyway, I remember being taught by Adam Ulam, for example. Yes, he was my, he was one of my professors as well, along with Richard Pipes. Yes. Uh, who was my thesis advisor. Yeah. Yes. Ulam was, <laughs> what a man. Uh, he had this really dry, kind of gruff, kind of weird way of putting it, but an understatement. I remember I remember a joke he made once where at Harvard when you before exams you have to cram, right? You have a you they give up classes. It's called the reading period. So he was talking about Jimmy Carter having discovered that suddenly that when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, that he said the well Jimmy Carter had uh, has an extensive reading period on the motivations of the Soviet Union. <laughs> anyway, anyway, he was a trip. Um, he was, uh, he was a character. I mean, he he basically used to hold court, perhaps you know, when we were there as well, in this yellow building, which was the Russian Research Center in his office. And his office had a very weird bathroom, which he used to hide in. And he would sit in his bath <laughs> and open the door because it was had a bathroom, a literal bathroom, not just a toilet, but a bath in it. And he'd sit in there and open the window, close the door, and smoke out the window because his assistant Christine Porter hated him smoking. And he would he would make you sit on the toilet while he's in the bath, smoking out the window, talking about your paper. And I just loved it because I thought it was just fantastic. And he was extraordinarily he he basically in his footnotes they were laugh out loud funny. It was something that I kind of thought to myself, note to self, put these, you know, kind of amusing asides in your footnotes of, of your books. And he had this tragic story though, just like Professor Pipes had. Basically, he was on the last, you know, ship out of Poland before the invasion, and he'd come with his brother, and they never saw the rest of their family again. Of course, his brother, Stanislav Ulam, goes on to work on the Manhattan Project and uh, become a, a nuclear physicist. And both of them play these, you know, incredible roles in America. And that was for me also the story of America, of people coming, you know, being saved from you know, a certain death in, you know, as, as refugees, you know, all these people from Eastern Europe, refugees from World War II, refugees from communism. And we had that great fortune of crossing over with them and being able to, you know, learn from their experiences as well. And I'd actually decided to study Russian because of the Euro missile crisis. I mean, you were already uh, coming to um, Harvard in, what was it, 84. And that was the period that I decided to study Russian because in 1983, we had a war scare. And although we weren't quite as aware of it as you know we are now, you still felt it was palpable attention. We had all of these uh, TV shows and, and films, threads the day after, the idea of nuclear Armageddon. It was the period of the campaign for nuclear disarmament and you know the peace movements across um, Europe. You know, one of my relatives was in you know the Green Common Women and uh, I'm in CND. You know, the the candidate 
kind of left, you know, but I had an, an uncle who'd fought um, in uh, World War Two, been in the Merchant Marine, had, you know, was really enamored with, you know, the Soviet Union, the role that they'd played during World War Two, and couldn't understand how we'd gone from being World War allies in trying to defeat the Nazis to then implacable enemies and on the verge of a nuclear confrontation. And it was against that kind of heady cocktail of events that I decide that I'm going to go and study Russian. And I go to St. Andrews in 1984 against the backdrop of this war scare of the Euro missile crisis, the, the big miners' strike of 1984, 1985, just a huge upheaval in uh, the British political system. And, you know, that's it. I've decided I'm going to study Russian. And then, you know, everything else like that floats and um, flows together because this is really, it's timing. Timing is often everything, isn't it, for, you know, how you end up moving on in life. So 1984, against this backdrop, George Orwell, Big Brother, you know, you name it, that's when I decide to study Russian. And uh, and you continued that at Harvard. You were interested, was, 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 did you, did part of you think, well, the key actor here is not Britain, it's the United States, obviously. And if, if I can yes. study it there, I'm going to have more insight, more leverage in a way that you wouldn't necessarily in a, in a smaller country uh, like the UK. Where Were you interested in, in and at the time, because Russia was, and I asked this of a previous guest, Sam Romani, I don't even know, he's a really smart guy. What is Russia? I, I, the last year or so, I've been trying to figure this question out. It's not really a simple nation state with clear boundaries. It has something else behind it. It, it, it has, to its north, there's no real boundary. It's just darkness and ice. And then it's moved around in its territorial ambitions, obviously hugely in the last 200 years, for example. Is there, is there something unique about Russia in your study of, of all countries? Is there something... Uh, I'm enigmatic about it. Yes, I mean, there is with every country, right? I mean, you know, every country has its own unique history. I mean, there are many countries in which their borders have changed. The history is pretty complex. There's a lot of overlap in many respects, actually, with the United Kingdom. And actually, the United Kingdom starts to form just on mainland parts of the British Isles in the same time frame that actually Russia is expanding into Ukraine and taking over the lands that are now being contested you know, after the invasion by Putin. So the Battle of Poltava, in which Peter the Great defeats the um, forces of Charles XII of Sweden, people forget that Sweden was once an empire, <laughs> for example, 1709, that is just around the same time of the union of the parliaments between the United, uh, you know, the England and Scotland. We had the union of the crowns back in the 1604 or, or so. And it's a full, you know, century later that you have the union of the parliaments, which isn't, you know, there's a result of a battle, but actually some pretty bad debts that the Scots got themselves into. And, you know, the British parliament insisted that they unify the parliaments as kind of parliamentary oversight, I guess, for the repayment of, of these debts and creating a single fiscal system. You know, so sometimes it happens through battles, sometimes it happens through some sort of strange ways. But that's really the beginning of the United Kingdom. And the, you know, the kind of expansion out of the British Empire. Now, the British Empire is not contiguous, although, you know, coming from the background that you do with Ireland as well, and some of that in my heritage, of course, we know that Ireland was the first colony. And there was sort of expansion of kind of English writ, you know, through Wales and in Ireland as well in, you know, earlier centuries, and then the unification with Scotland, and then, you know, the kind of expansion out from there. The, Russia goes through a similar period of imperial expansion, but because it's on the same landmass, the Eurasian landmass, it's extraordinarily rapid. I mean, Russia is the fastest growing country in 1900, or by 1900, in terms of its population growth, but also because it's expanded out there over all of these centuries. 
in a you know 200 year time frame it's gone off in all kinds of different directions it's acquired territory from china you know in the 1860s north of the Amur River, east of Lake Baikal, areas that later it will get into a conflict with China in 1969 over those border regions. It's moved down into Central Asia and clashed with the British Empire as Britain and, and you know Russia are expanding in the same times in that whole area around the Hindu Kush and um, Afghanistan, the, the areas of the Great Game. It's moved down into the Caucasus and clashed with the Ottoman Empire, you know, the lands that are now Armenia, Georgia and Azerbaijan, contested with the Ottoman Empire and also the Iranian, the Persian Empire. And of course, it's moved backwards and forwards in, you know, the, in, in, in Europe, in Eastern Europe or, you know, further towards the West, depending on one's perspective. The lands that it's still contesting now, Belarus, Ukraine and uh, Moldova and uh, the territories around the Black Sea. And this, you know, kind of waxing and waning of this territory over the Russian Empire and it's falling apart in the Soviet Union. So the territorial extent of Russia is fascinating. The socio-cultural, political elements of its history are also fascinating. And I think, you know, one of the books that was most helpful to me in understanding this, well, two of them were really by Professor Pipes, my uh, PhD advisor, ultimately, Russia under the old regime, which talks about the sort of complexities of the social structure. You know, just like we have the complexities of class structure in, in England, you have these complexities of this social structure of different estates with serfdom and the aristocracy and their relationship uh, to the Tsar, the uh, emergence of autocracy and the Orthodox Church, you know, for example, the creation of a kind of a sense of uh, official nationality in the late imperial period. And then he also writes a book, it was ultimately his dissertation, was initially his dissertation rather, on the formation of the Soviet Union and how there was a lot of continuity from the imperial period into the Soviet period. And that was a theme of Adam Ulam's work, probably one of the courses you took with him, of, you know, continuity and change in, you know, Soviet policy from the imperial period. Studying both, both of them, who happened to be Polish Jews, was utterly fascinating, a completely different perspective. And, you know, Putin has been invoking in his invasion of Ukraine, you know, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, the battles that Russia had with the Poles and the Lithuanians and the Swedes and the subsequent claims that Russia had as a result of all of this to Kiev and the lands of Ukraine, as well as going back into ancient history and the early emergence of these first dynasties, the Rurikid dynasties in these lands uh, that are now modern Ukraine and Russia, who were Vikings who had, you know, moved down the river system you know, coming in from uh, the Baltic Sea. And of course, Britain has its own history with the Vikings and our own stories about those as well, especially Ireland and uh, Scotland. And I grew up in Danelaw, the whole area of uh, north of the Humber, including York and up towards what is the area around Hadrian's Wall that ultimately became dominated by the Vikings and Viking kingdoms as well. So I always saw actually a lot of parallels mm. between the UK and the history of the British Isles and Russia. Um, so if you were... Play, play with this analogy for me, because I was talking about this actually with Anne Applebaum. Mm -hmm. is Ireland is a kind of analogy to Ukraine. Absolutely and, it is. And Absolutely. you could see Ulster as sort of Donbass. Uh, exactly it, right. Okay. Uh, so she, she really didn't like that. But I think that's, that, well, I, that, I, that's I, very I, helpful. Yeah, I, I find the same thing. I, I try to explain this to people in the same way. I was saying, look, this is a post-imperial, post-colonial grab by Putin and Russia. And this would be like Britain or, or, you know, the UK deciding to take back Ireland. 
Yeah. And I say take back because, of course, Ireland had this, you know, rather extended period of independence, you know, around the time of World War One, which actually Ukraine also had a brief period of independence uh, after World War One as well, but before, you know, the kind of the Bolshevik Civil War pulled it But there's also the the parallel of the famine that they were treated as subhuman almost and 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 died in en masse in exactly the same way the Stalin well not exactly the same way Stalin was much worse I think um, but. also the idea of the pale of settlement right so when use the expression beyond the pale there's two origins of that one is the pale of settlement inside of um, Ukrainian lands which is why we have Volodymyr Zelensky who was a Ukrainian Jew where the Jews of the Russian Empire were confined to a certain area of settlement, you know, pale being a stake um, in the ground in, you know, the English um, words, you know, like the word palisade, you know, kind of fortification, you know, basically to keep people in as well as keeping others out and demarcating the pale of settlement in in, in Ukraine and Belarus and the kind of Russian empire. And of course, in um, Ireland, the pale of settlement was that distinction between English settlement, the settlers who were kind of brought in there, and the Irish, who they were imposed upon. And, you know, of course, the aristocracy in Ireland is all an imposed aristocracy. And, you know, similarly, in Ukraine, it was much more of a peasant culture. As you said, there's kind of parallels with the famine. I mean, we don't want to take it too far, but if you're using this as an explanatory analogy, I think it is quite effective. And I've noticed when I'm going out and about and talking to people, I mean, I, you know, completely agree with Anne Applebaum. It's got to be, you know, it has its own unique history, but it's very useful to be able to explain to people what this is about. Because also, just as, you know, it gets back to where we started with Kenneth Branagh's Belfast, the Donbass was the heavily industrialized part of eastern Ukraine built up with coal mining and obviously not shipbuilding, although, you know, on the Sea of Azov, that was certainly the case. Places like Mariupol, Melitopol, Berziansk, all these places that are being absolutely devastated now. Those were shipbuilding and export ports. I mean, Belfast played that role as well. I mean, that's the place that in the um, shipyards of Belfast, it made the Titanic. But you also have this, you know, agricultural hinterland, but you have the concentration of industry there and you have then a lot of English speakers other people brought in, you have the Scots-Irish as well, who are settled there and come into work in all the kind of the factories and the industrial enterprises there. And it becomes blue-collar working class as well and loses its place and has this massive sense of dislocation when you have the kind of breaking apart of, of the old empire. Let me ask you a, a, a kind of big question here, which is the, the moment when you're learning Russian and the INF Treaty is being signed and everything is moving forward. And then you have the 90s, this period of extraordinary possibilities, it seems. And here we are 20, over 20 years into the 21st century. And clearly, how, would you describe the West's management of Russia? Obviously, nothing is 100% good, 100% bad. How, what grade would you give us? As in, 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 and what would be the biggest mistake we might have made because obviously we're currently not in an optimal situation i don't want to blame the west this is not what i'm talking about the, the blame for everything that's happening now is 100 on putin right but we can still think about what might we have done differently that might have made a difference and was our our gung-ho attitude towards nato expansion and eu expansion all the rest of it was that a little what's the word a little little dumb in terms of the way russia might respond to it? I think what we didn't do is really factor in all of these consequences. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you and I maybe both did courses with Graham Allison at the Kennedy School. I was also yes. his research assistant for a while. 
of it. And Graham would always ask, and then what? And then what? <laughs> you know, if you do something, his next question was, and then what? And then what happens? And then what would you do? And we didn't do that. We didn't do those, you know, kind of decision trees and uh, really think about it. You know, now with NATO expansion, I mean, if you looked at it purely from a Russian point of view, it does look reckless and foolhardy because, you know, Russia anticipated that NATO would disappear along with the Cold War, just the Warsaw Pact fell apart. Now, very different entities. You know, the NATO, uh, a creation of choice. The countries that joined NATO did so for collective mutual self-defense, you know, under extremists as the Cold War emerged. But they weren't forced into it by the United States. The Warsaw Pact was very much the imposition of a collective security treaty on a lot of countries that didn't particularly want it after World War II by the Soviet Union, after the division of Europe, where it, it imposed its dominance over all of them. And so when the Warsaw Pact is dissolved with the um, dissolution of the Soviet Union, you know, we did make these efforts. And I you know, think we could have had a you know, pretty good grade for effort early on in the 1990s to try to create some new mechanisms. We had this partnership for peace that was a kind of a mechanism that wasn't supposed to be membership in NATO, but was meant to create these relationships with the former Soviet states, states of the former Eastern Bloc and with Russia itself. But, you know, it was countries like Poland, Hungary and the Czech Republic that then wanted to be members of NATO themselves. They chose this. Now, why did they chose it to choose it? Well, because of their experiences during the Cold War. Those three countries in particular have in common Soviet interventions. Hungary in 1956, what was then Czechoslovakia in 1968, and Poland, of course, in the 1980s. And so their memory is what Ukraine now has of a military intervention when they were trying to go off in their own way. I mean, even just to adapt the socialist system, the Prague Spring, you know, the goulash communism in, in Hungary, in Poland, you know, with also the, the emergence of the solidarity and, you know, the movements and, you know, wanting to open up somewhat, become more pluralistic societies. And, you know, Russia, Soviet Union came right in and clamped down on them, which is what it's doing, frankly, in Ukraine and also did in Georgia in 2008. You know, but we, we didn't really factor in at all times along this, what the likely reaction would be of, of Russia. Because Russia loses something, just like Britain feels like it lost something at the end of empire in the in the 1990s. I mean, look, Britain is still yabbering on about global Britain, uh, British um, politicians. And Brexit, you know, had a lot to do with this, about taking back control, taking back your independence and sovereignty, going back to a kind of an earlier formulation of Britain that's out there in the world and not shackled to the European Union. I mean, this is all the kinds of sort of language that you get in a sort of a post-imperial setting. In 1956, there's a big clash between the United States and the United Kingdom and France as well over Suez and the kind of the UK and France all thinking that they have these post-colonial rights of intervention in you know areas that have once been within their spheres of influence as well. You know, so Russia falls into this classic pattern of a post-imperial hangover. Hungary still having irredentist aims towards Hungarian speakers that are in you know Romania nearby and also in Ukraine, frankly, and other you know neighboring countries. And so, you know, again, 25 million Russian speakers find themselves outside of the Russian Federation after the collapse of the Soviet Union. That becomes a kind of an obsession for certain nationalist politicians in Russia. The sense that Putin articulates all the time of the great loss of position in Europe, the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century, the collapse of the Soviet Union, but also he would say the Russian Empire before it. He's always talking about loss all the time and grievance and this loss of identity, loss of place. And Putin himself, of course, would probably never have become president 
of Russia or of the Soviet Union had it stayed together. I mean, he has actually has an incredible personal gain, but it's all shaped by his sense of having lost something, this post-imperial hangover. And we should have really factored that in more. It's, you know, many people did talk about Weimar Germany and that, you know, kind of perceptions of loss from World War One, from, you know, the German Empire, such as it was, but certainly the kingdom and, you know, the, the, the monarchy. And, you know, Putin has moved into the same phase. A lot of Germans recognize that, but, you know, they also didn't do anything, you know, much about it either. I think what we needed to do was just have a proper assessment of this and not, you know, kind of lose focus. We often took our eyes off the ball. There was kind of an assumption that Russia would go along. You know, we mistook temporary weakness for actually acquiescence to, you know, various developments, but that wasn't the case at all. And somebody like Putin, I mean, I wrote a book about, you know, Putin with a colleague, Mr. Putin operative in the Kremlin, you know, back in 2013, again in 2015, the patterns were extraordinarily clear. And his views were extraordinarily clear. There's no surprise that, you know, with how things in some respects have turned out from his vantage point. The failings on our part were not taking this seriously and not taking adequate precautions. We did a lot of strategic blunders, offering you know, a, a, an eventual membership of NATO to Ukraine and Georgia in 2008, but without thinking it all the way through about what the implications that offer would be, particularly as we didn't have a membership action plan. There was resistance to it, including in Ukraine itself at the popular level. We knew that there would be a Russian reaction. And, you know, we didn't do enough to address this and figure out how we were going to deal with it. And to be honest, as a, as a consumer of the mass media over here, and, and being an interested and probably more than generally informed person, the vision that I've understood that Putin has been expressing is something I've only really come to terms with in the last month or two. I mean, that, that it wasn't fully this, this, un, this great sense of Putin and the national sense of loss, this, this emotional need to recreate something, the sense of complete loss of stature after it was just US and USSR, and suddenly with this Obama called fourth-rate regional power. That must right. have been crazy to hear him say that. That's sort of that. I mean, I think I've said this before. <laughs> Obama must have driven him as nuts as he drove Trump nuts at that White House correspondence dinner. Just the dismissal of this country. Is there any particular thing that we did that one, if you went back in time, you say, oh, I wouldn't have done that thing? Obviously, I think the offer to Georgia and Ukraine of potential NATO membership was a silly thing to do, given that we didn't have any plans to back it up. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It was a blunder. Yeah, and that's it, it doesn't yeah. mean that we're responsible for what's happening now. We can, I'm, again, yeah. why we have to have that debate, I don't know. Exactly. Well, the only person who's responsible, and it's not, you know, kind of any individual. I mean, there's this back and forth in the United States saying, well, it was the weakness of Biden and everything else. It was our overall weakness, however, that did make Putin think that he could get away with it because of our polarization, partisan infighting, you know, the fact that we looked like, you know, we were on the way down, especially after the financial crisis of 2008, 2009. I think that is a critical point that we have to factor in as well. It suddenly looks like it's the United States that blows up the global economy. And Putin looks at that and says, and you know, he had a lot of admiration for the United States economically prior to that, and then thought, these guys don't know what they're doing. Well, and, also, you know, that, wasn't, been, that wasn't just um, him. On a, on a track. Well, exactly. There's a lot of people. I mean, we did regular human beings. Right? <laughs> regular human beings looked up and said, what? It's not the same thing, exactly. Uh, what? I know, exactly. And that was a massive mismanagement. There's yes, a whole series because... of things. I mean, that, that was significant. The other thing was Iraq. The Iraq War, surely, right? It was huge. That was huge. The Iraq War essentially devastated any role the United States had in fermenting stability in the world. It created this precedent for a great power going in. 
It didn't have Correct. total UN support. It, and of course, it created absolute chaos and not just chaos for the US, also for Russia. I mean, there was a lot of, uh, and there was a moment there when Bush and Putin seemed to be allied in terms of tackling Islamic extremism, which was- Yes, a, after 9-11, for sure, yeah, yes. There was a, but when I think of the elites of the West, you know, they, they, the 21st century has been pretty brutal on us in terms of screwed up the response to 9-11, massively screwed up the economy with the 08 crash. You know, these, these and also the inability to really cope with this massive deindustrialization, which was happening at a, at a, a pace that was clearly outstripping Americans' ability to digest it or to stay stable. Yes, and to keep up with it, absolutely, yeah. Uh, and then and demographic change moving very quickly as well. Yes, and adding that. All of these things come together. And so you can see why a, a figure like Trump was just sort of waiting to happen. You, you could see that yeah. sense of, and when you put that populist challenge up against someone who seemed to represent everything the elite, I'm talking about Hillary now, Hillary Clinton, uh, you know, even she still won the popular vote, so it wasn't a massive, but it was particularly massive among the kind of people you grew up with and the people who were just like, because even with your neighborhood, I mean, are they, a, did they, is your old, where you grew up, a pro-Brexit region? Basically voted for Brexit yeah. by 61%. And mm. also in 2019, after 100 years of either the Labour Party or occasionally the Liberals, but the Liberals, you know, back in the old days, the Lloyd George-like Liberals, they voted for Conservatives of the Tories for the first time in the history of the constituency. And that was a big shock. Oh, yeah. Because the feeling was, just like in the United States, that Labour was no longer, you know, the, the party of the working class had let people down. There'd be no change, no benefits to the um, town in the region. Uh, it looked more like most of the people who were coming in were carpetbaggers, you know, more interested in what they were doing in Westminster. You know, I, I talked to, you know, many friends and relatives who just basically said, look, Labour's all about Islington these days, you know, the Jeremy Corbyn. You know, although he wouldn't describe himself as such, but they saw them as the champagne socialists, you know, the people who are all into ideology. And I don't think they'd actually describe your former classmate Keir Starmer in the same way, but certainly somebody like Corbyn, you know, they saw him as, OK, you know, kind of pretty much focused on a purist on ideology, but not in touch with the working class at all. Yeah. And working you know, class not, culture. Not no, no, not any understanding of it whatsoever. And so, you know, they were open, you know, to somebody else coming along. The local MP is Diana Davidson, very young, you know, woman. Interestingly, a protege of Boris Johnson and Jacob Rees-Mogg, which doesn't fit at all, you know, in many respects. But she's from the north, from a working class uh, background. Her father was killed, you know, kind of very early on in bizarre, you know, incident in a pub where he was felled with, you know, kind of in a, an errant punch. I mean, a horrible tragedy, you know, so basically left without a father at a young age. And, you know, kind of she had a compelling story. And you know what she did? She went and visited everybody in the town. She moved there and did the old fashioned grassroots going door to door. And, you know, my mother and other people said, well, she showed up. You know, yep. other people didn't. Know, the Labour Party Growing up, it had been a long time since, you know, the days of when my MP, Derek Foster, had a huge role. He was the chief whip of the Labour Party. He'd come to the school. He showed an interest. He was one of the people who told me, yeah, you could go to university like everyone else. But that that's, you know, kind of the early 80s. Fast forward 30, 40 years and Labour's just lost the plot. Yeah. And of course, culturally, uh, working class Brits, Irish, whatever, they're not particularly PC either. They're not, no, they're they're like not, they're not interested in, 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 yeah, exactly. and, 
and old school patriots. I was from the United States, the old, you know, style Democrats. I mean, I yeah. have extended family. My husband's family from the Midwest, and they're from all across the Midwest. Huge, you know, Catholic family, mm. and many of them live in Wisconsin in Kenosha County. And you know, going there and you know, talking to everyone's the same thing. Mm -hmm. It's exactly the same kind of viewpoints. The Democrats, you know, Hillary Clinton didn't show up. You know, Trump has these rallies. He's speaking to people. He's, you know, kind of saying, I'm hearing you. I'm I'm listening to what you're saying. I understand your grievances. I'm going to change things. And they're like, well, why not? Yeah, absolutely. You are, you then ascend to the lofty heights of Washington wonkdom. You, you become a member of what some people have called the blob. But... You make a decision to actually work for Trump at the NSC. Now, tell me how that decision came about and, and, and how you went about that. I and mean, presumably you thought, well, Jesus, Lord, someone has to be in there at some point. <laughs> From your book, I get the strong impression you wouldn't share any of their politics at all, domestically or in any other respect. But... The NSC has this tradition of being uh, a, a broad body that's supposed to include different viewpoints to test the president's or and so you forgive me, did you join the NSC then or were you already there and decided to stay? No, I do join it. You know, so look, I actually already had a stint in government. You mentioned it already during the Bush administration, then into the first year of the Obama administration as the national intelligence officer. So I'd been this, you know, national intelligence analyst for Russia and Eurasia. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd then subsequently run one of the centers at Brookings on the US and Europe. I'd written this book about with my colleague Clifford Gaddy on Mr. Putin operative in the Kremlin, all about, you know, kind of Putin and Russia. And, you know, so I was observing unfold, not just the Trump phenomenon, which I recognize from all the things that we've been talking about. I, I, I knew he was going to get elected. I just felt it. I because did too. I saw it coming. I yeah. just saw this coming. Look, and I read yeah. your piece on, you know, why America is ripe for tyranny. I mean, it really struck with me. I'd read it several times. You know, I, even I hadn't really been in contact, but I'd read this. I thought, God, yeah, this is, this is what's unfolding here. It's the rise of populism on the back of this sort of degeneration of our socioeconomic system, this massive gaps, this rapid periods of change in not just the economy, but, you know, the kind of in the globalization, but also in demographics and, you know, people feeling dislocated, disoriented, you know, kind of lost, looking for an anchor here. Same thing was happening in the UK. I'd seen the same thing happening in Russia and the rise of Putin. I, I kind of recognize this. Mm. Similar phenomenon here. Putin, in my view, is the first populist president of the 21st century, coming in as he does in 99, 2000 and saying, I'm going to make Russia great again, appealing to the same base of people in the old industrial heartlands of Russia, the old workers and peasants, and not being popular at all, actually, as time goes on in the big cities in Moscow and St. Petersburg, where the elites there pretty much repudiate him, you know, over, over time. So, you know, interesting and not, not dissimilar phenomenon, but he's not on a political party. It's just he's a one-off, you know, in that hierarchical, you know, very autocratic um, leader-focused system that, you know, I, we know to be Russia. But the main thing for me is the Russian interference in the election in 2016. Because, I mean, in a way, I'd been, you know, just finished the second edition of this book, um, Mr. Putin 2015, the way that Russia was already interfering in other countries. And I'd had a little bit of a failure of the imagination to see how vulnerable the United States was to this despite having read your article, uh, because I was sort of thinking more about the domestic front. And then suddenly, you know, Putin and the Kremlin have created absolute chaos, mayhem in the political system. 
And of course, it's a classic influence operation, propaganda right out of the Cold War textbook operation. But it just takes off because of social media and the acute vulnerability in the US political system. And when I get asked to come in by people I'd worked with before when I was in the Directorate of National Intelligence in the um, intelligence community, uh, people, you know, actually around General Flynn, of, of all people, but he'd been my counterpart in the um, chairman's office of the Joint Chiefs of Staff when I was the National Intelligence Office. I'd actually worked with him very closely in that period, 2006 to 2009. Very different character. I had no idea about all of his politics. He was the other intel person. And they asked me to come in. And I think, well, somebody's got to do this. It's public service. It was this kind of feeling like, God, I've written this book about Putin. I know exactly what he's about. You know, I, I'm still in contact with colleagues, you know, the, the, from the intelligence community. The mission is try to make sure that the Russians can't do this again and try to figure out how you mitigate the consequences of what they've done and, you know, get them out of our politics. And I will admit, I admit it all the time, that I was naive about US politics at the time. I didn't realize how dirty it was, honestly. I didn't realize that in many respects it, it mirrored the Kremlin. You know, maybe if I'd done government studies like you did at Harvard, you know, I might have had a bit of a, you know, different um, uh, take on it. But I really kind of figured that once I got in there, because of the nature of the National Security Council, the lot of the people who were there would be able to focus on the mission and that, you know, there would be a deeper understanding of what needed to be done. And then, you know, of course, I get the full encounter of, Trump. I mean, I'd been warned uh, about this, but I don't think even the people who warned me fully appreciated and understood all of the dimensions. So when you first encountered Trump, what is your first, when you first actually had a meeting with him or him in the, what was your response? He's, he's just no different in private than he is in public. I mean, right. he's just like that person you saw out there as the sort of like the public figure, the reality TV person. And that was kind of when I suddenly realized, well, this is not going to work out because, you know, he was not acting particularly presidential. There was nothing particularly presidential about him. And he's just somebody who just doesn't want to listen to other people. And I, as a kind of nondescript middle-aged woman, you know, with funny accent, I mean, there's nothing about me that's going to lend him to listen to me. He doesn't care if I've written a book. He doesn't know, you know, what make me an expert. He's just evinces no interest whatsoever. <clears throat> and, you know, I'm introduced as, you know, well, President Trump. This is your new Russia advisor, and as the you know the senior director, and he's like, well, Rex is doing Russia, and I was like, Rex, he means Rex Tillerson, you know, so who's Secretary of State at this point, and you know he's gone from being the CEO of ExxonMobil, one of the largest, most significant countries in the companies in the whole world, to Rex, you know, the Secretary of State, and Putin sees that Rex Tillerson is going to be his interface with Russia and Putin, so they can get that first sit down with Putin, where he's going to work out a deal with the Russians, and his whole idea. He's going to have a deal on nuclear nuclear weapons. It's back to the 80s. He's totally 80s man. It's like right out of that popular culture that you and I were steeped in about America. And he's it. He epitomizes it. It's the wolf of Wall Street. It's the you know bomb, bomb, the bonfire of the, of the vanities. It's all of this. It's I red like, oh, dawn. Goodness, I can't believe it. Yeah. It's him. It's him. He's all in, encapsulated in one person. And, you know, and then I thought, wow, this is actually going to be really difficult. <laughs> Plan B, C, D and E are going to be necessary here. If I'm really going to try to do something with everyone else, it's obviously not going to be through Trump. I mean, initially, the idea had been that I would sit down with him and do my talk about Putin, which I've done many times. I can do it at the everyman level. You know, it's kind of they thought that he you know, might listen. I explain you know, what he's about. We've got that connection on nuclear arms control. I could talk about seeing Reagan at Moscow, you know, those fears you know, growing up. And he was obviously animated by them as well. 
you know, he's a child of the Cuban Missile Crisis. He's he's coming of well, more of than coming of age, but in his peak during the Euro Missile Crisis, he wanted to be arms control negotiator to meet with Gorbachev, even on behalf of Reagan. You know, he was out there trying to do all of this. And there's this sort of thought that maybe, you know, by the people who brought me in that I can sit and talk to him. It just never gets off the ground. So I just, you know, divert. I just start to focus on the national security advisor. It was then McMaster. Flynn had gone by the time I got in. And then with Bolton in the period that I was there. But I did listen to a lot of warnings of colleagues and I just bounded my time there. I gave myself two years. And as they said to me, if you're not part of a solution, get out of there because then you're part of a problem. And yes, that was very clear by the end of the two years. And, you know, I missed that phone call, the perfect phone call by a week. I mean, when I was leaving, it was just being talked about. I was recommending against it very strongly, not because I actually knew all of the details. That only really comes out during the impeachment hearings when I myself fully process everything that's been happening. But because I just thought it was going to be quite disastrous anyway, because Trump just was not interested in Ukraine. And, you know, I couldn't see how this phone call would actually move along the U.S.-Ukrainian relationship. Why do you think Trump just loved Putin, loves him in, in a way? Is it a, my, here's my view, which is that it's not that complicated. Uh, Trump always likes, if he goes into a room, he wants to find out who the mafia boss is. And he wants to go sit with them at the back of the casino. He doesn't want to hang out with anybody else. He has this kind of weird aberration also for cruelty and for people who treat other people like shit, he regards that as a kind of virtue. I think people, my own view is I think people overthink Trump's passion for Putin. I think he's, he's, it's really quite visceral and simple. And he has this view of, he always had this view of Western Europeans as total, you know, layabouts who don't, totally parasites on the American thing, which, which again, isn't entirely untrue in terms of, of and they're now finally, realizing they needed to be more in the game. And the Germans are finally doing what Trump asked them to do at the very beginning. So I, I do not think there was some elaborate conspiracy that succeeded in rigging the election in 2016. I think it affected it in a small way. And you could make an argument that affected it in small margins in different places. But you, in a close election, you could make that argument with any, any other issue. But, and I agree with you. I think, I think Trump would have loved to, with Putin, do some big deal and reduce nuclear weapons. And yeah, that's exactly peace. what he wants to do. Look, I had the same view, you know, I write about that in the book. You know, I, I, I don't believe he was the Moscow candidate. Trump would never do anything for anyone else anyway. I know. And, you know, he has no ideology apart from self-idolatry and it's all about him. Yes. There's no America first, it's just Trump first. And he saw America as a kind of a merger and acquisition with his own family firm. You know, when he becomes president, he thinks he's all powerful. His model of a president is somebody like Vladimir Putin. It's not Ronald Reagan or Andrew Jackson or any of the people that, you know, are posited out there. And it becomes apparent, you know, right away. I mean, Trump is a type, again, 1980s type, somebody who's very familiar. He's not a conservative. He's, you know, somebody who will play to in any direction that he thinks will be beneficial for himself. And just exactly as you said, he admires people who he thinks are strong and powerful in the way that he defines it, which is just what you said. It's sort of visceral. It's like, Putin's um, mantra is the weak get beaten and the strong do the beating. And that's exactly Donald Trump's view as well. And My he saw Europeans as extraordinarily weak. And remember the, you know, the awful episode that, you know, I had to live through and everybody else had to watch in Helsinki when he takes Putin's word over the intelligence communities. And he said, I have the telling phrases. I have Vladimir Putin next to me and he's been very strong and powerful. 
because Putin epitomizes for him what a leader is. He's got autocrat envy as well. Trump believed that he ought to also be completely in charge as um, president, stay on as long as he liked. I mean, that's why we had January 6th, you know, the, the attempt to subvert the electoral process. And his basic view was, if, if everybody else wasn't at this was, wasn't at this level, it's autocrat envy. He wanted to be an autocrat. There should be no checks and balances. He should have unbridled power. And everybody who works for him, including people like Rex Tillerson, they become secretaries. They become, you know, peons. They become minions. They're not at his level anymore. Only people like Putin are at his level. I was struck when I saw that recent press conference, well, the broadcast meeting that Putin had with his top advisors. They were sitting, obviously, a long way away from him in a circle. But the way they all, he asked them questions and they all had to praise or it reminded me of Trump's those hideous cabinet meetings where Trump would have all these people sit around and just bark praise and try and guess what he wanted to say, then to say, and and make them subservient to him. All this weird social dynamics, massive insecurity. What Now, what surprised, genuinely surprised me about that experience was that it seemed quite obvious to me who he was, and it seemed quite obvious, I know, to so many Republicans, but they still, they still won't cut him off. In Ohio, all the Senate candidates, not a single Republican Senate primary candidate believed that Biden won the last election. So that's where we're at. How do you explain yeah, that? What in America well, suddenly became yeah. tyrant-loving? I mean, what was going on here? Yeah, I mean, it's. I don't think you and I would ever have anticipated this when we came, right? We talked about how intoxicated we were with America, the freedom, the opportunity. You know, in part, that's one of the reasons I wanted to write the book, right, to sort of explain the phenomenon of, you know, this that sort of dislocation, that post-industrial blight, the grievances that emerge out of that, then the the Great Recession, the, the rapid demographic change, things changing so quickly that people really kind of say, stop, stop, I want to get off. Right. You know, that's the kind of sort of feeling right. that people had. So someone like, as you wrote, you know, in your essay, <clears throat> you know, why America's ripe for tyranny, it was ripe for this moment. And Donald Trump, was the perfect person for it in many respects because people, everybody thought they knew him from reality TV. Yeah, I mean, I remember you know, seeing him, in, and it, it's like at a jolt when you know, Christmas you watch Home Alone two, you know, again <laughs> there he is, you know, walking through, you know, the park plaza, and you know, kind of he's still there giving the directions, and it's because everybody knew him and everybody had this kind of feeling about him. People thought he was actually a very successful businessman from the settings of The Apprentice. I mean, he had a whole revival uh, through reality TV. He was amusing. You know, he's charismatic. He you know, has this, this lifestyle. You know, when I was growing up in the UK, you probably watched this as well. There was Clive Cook and the uh, Lives of the Rich and Famous. Oh, God, yes. And, you know, that was, everybody watched that in some respects, thinking of that life that somehow if they maybe if they won the lottery or, you know, something else happened, you know, that could be their life. And that's what that's what basically Trump's selling. Putin's selling a lifestyle as well, honestly, you know, with the, the you know, the the rumors of it, which he sometimes, you know, spreads himself, but it's one of the facts, obviously, about his relationship with the absolutely beautiful, much younger rhythmic gymnast, you know, the palaces, the yachts, you know, this is the kind of, it's a sort of an aspirational lifestyle that most people will never have. But in a way, the everyman is selling it to them. Trump's basically saying, you too can have a gold-plated toilet, you know, and if you kind of, you know, basically leave it to me, I'll make sure that, you know, you you have that kind of lifestyle. I'll be your champion. I'll be out there. You know, I'm going to kind of, you know, whack the guys, you know, who have been denying you your place, the people who aren't listening to you, the elites who are making fun of you. 
And that's very appealing for a lot of people. It's the big middle finger. It's the let's blow everything up uh, together phenomenon, as well as then, you know, for the Republican Party, which he essentially hijacks. There are 17 candidates in those primaries, right? Was it 17? Something and crazy. And he's the last like man. Everybody knocks themselves out. And he's the one who's standing and because he's brutal and he's ruthless. And he just, you know, kind of uh, brings them all down, uses his reality TV um, skills. and But he also told some skills. pretty brutal truths that the Republicans had not said to themselves. For example, that exactly. moment, that mean, moment in the debate. The yeah, the, 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 the moment in the debate where Jeb says, my brother kept us safe and Trump said, no, he didn't. <laughs> you know, he he presided over 9-11, then he fucked up the war. Yeah. And you could almost hear every Republican in the audience who had labored under this delusion and still had to kind of defend it, feel relief. Oh, fuck, we don't have to defend that anymore. And this, the notion of this sort of scion of an elite family, Jeb, trying to perpetuate the rule of his own family into further incompetence drove them crazy. I understand it. I, I totally got it. I, I could see yeah. why you would feel that way. I still think you should be grown up and say, still not voting for him. But I, I understood what I found really disturbing is that if you think the it's prince a charismatic personality element as well, though, right? Yes, 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 yes. And I mean, I think that fits into, you know, I mean, I know you're going to say about what you find disturbing, but that also fits into that, you know, kind of theme. You know, we're thinking about the decadence of Rome. I mean, that was kind of what you were alluding to in your essay about, you know, why America's right for tyranny. I know I keep talking about that. So I just hope that people haven't read it, they should go out and read that again. Because it's that, it is that kind of, you know, people giving fealty to a certain kind of leadership in that kind of moment, basically because there isn't anything else. And people have lost their sense of agency, you know, different forms of government, representation of government or, and people's affiliation and affinity with their representatives is broken down. So you end up with the champion. And if you've got a particular charismatic personality who can manipulate people and people devolve their power from them, that's exactly who gets um, a grip. Yeah, it was for me, it was is if having learned America, really having gotten here and really studied and thought about its ethos and its underlying principles. And, and for me, it was all about self-government. You know, it was about governing yourself first and. The whole point of America was yes. we're not having a tyrant telling us everything. We're not going to let that person over there dictate our... And over 250 years, they're suddenly like, yes, we actually we forget the self-government thing. We want somebody to do it all for us. Uh, a very alien sense in America. Uh, at yeah, least and, that, to, and that's, me. you know, in, in the book, the theme is that that is kind of the trajectory we want from the 1980s. And ultimately, I think Trump is the culmination of that because it's the hyper-individualization. And, you know, kind of in a way that that's the outcropping of the Thatcher phenomenon as well. I mean, I'm quite hard in the book on Thatcher, not because, you know, I I, 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 I talked to my, my colleagues here, I'm like, we're not going to bring up Thatcher because we're just... Yeah, uh, that but, will, I, that but I want to talk about it because I actually admire him in many respects. How could you because, not? I mean, yeah, how could you not? Exactly. But what she didn't understand was the importance of community. And, you know, she was very much, a you know, it's the rugged individual. But there's no such thing as a rugged individual unless you're living, you know, kind of out on your own. You know, I go to Wyoming, you know, from every year out in the, you know, the kind of the Jackson Hole area, you know, where there were mountain men living on there. But, you know, most of them, you know, didn't live really long, healthy lives. It's extraordinarily difficult living all there out on your own. And most people, you know, live in these communities. And what Thatcher, you know, did in her time was gutted communities that had mutual support and that didn't live off, you know, the government dime. 
Some miners had their own welfare societies. The Jews they paid to the Durham Miners Association in County Durham, for example, went to miners' well organisations, you know, football leagues, pigeon fanciers, you know, sketching clubs, literary societies. But they also went into education and they went into helping people when they fell on hard times, if they got injured. They didn't, people didn't sign on the dole. They helped each other. And, you know, when those were all stripped away by the kind of this rapid, you know, kind of process of privatization, deindustrialization, the mechanisms from self-help disappeared and people then had no money. And then the the entrepreneurs in the villages and the towns lost their, their shops and stores as well because they suddenly had no customers. There was no customer base. And so whole societies, whole towns, whole villages all fell apart. And there could have been a different phasing in because ultimately, you know, the working class is aspirational as well. I mean, that's, you know, something that Labour and probably the Democrats missed as well. People don't want to live in poverty. You know, they, they actually, you know, are quite farsighted. They're, they're capitalists. That's why Marx never really took off in um, the United Kingdom. You know, that's where he wrote everything, well, the, right? And, you know, my mind, one of the most... Because the working class wanted to get ahead. They wanted to get an education and they had, you know, other aspirations. I, the, by far the most impressive thing that Thatcher did, I think, was... For people in public housing to say you could own that house. Yes, to give them a stick. Yeah, give exactly. Stick. To give them the opportunity she to did, buy the house. She did yeah. stuff like that in ways that I think need to be acknowledged. At the same time, of course, the and to some extent it also is a fault somewhat of her predecessors having kept these industries up in a way that was just not sustainable. I mean, it just wasn't. It wasn't sustainable at all. I mean, I, I knew that. I mean, in my head, I knew it. You know, in yeah. my heart, so I was, you know, obviously pretty struck by what happened. But yeah. it's that it's the rampant individual, the hyper-individualization that comes out of it. That's what Trump is the phenomenon of. And yeah. I mean, it, and it's that breakdown in representative democracy as well, where you, when you did break down the trade unions or the workers' associations, you know, look, we're seeing now a big struggle in the United States, baristas, you know, in Starbucks, our research assistants at Brookings all wanting to create unions because they want to have representation, they want to have a voice. And we've got too much performance politics going on in Congress, you know, the similar way, you know, to a bit of a lesser extent, I think, in the UK, because the party politics are broken down in the United States. And people are looking for ways of having a voice, having some agency, having some representation. And, you know, Trump was basically saying, I'll give you that for a lot of people. Yeah. And so, I mean, in a way, I, the theme at the end of the book is, you know, perhaps not the most you know likely one, but it's actually saying, let's go back to a kind of, in a way, federalism. I mean, you were studying that in government studies. I audited one of those, you know, courses there and, you know, reinvigorate local communities and, you know, give people more local agency and, and forms of representation or means of representation that are closer to people, you know, to give them a kind of a stake again. I mean, that's the sort of an antidote. It's not going to be the solution, but no. it's a partial antidote to what we've been um, experiencing. The Britain levelling up agenda is part of that as well. Yes. It actually leads to some kind of devolution. You know, that's coming out of a Conservative government with Boris Johnson and Michael Gove and people who seem to be serious about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think people over here don't realise that either, that in fact the Tories didn't just appeal culturally to, to Brexit-supporting working-class people. They also said, we're also going to shift investment to the North and have a, which, whether you believed it or not. And, they, and some of the things they have walked back a little bit, but not the whole thrust. The levelling up agenda seems to be still, when they say level up, they mean bring the north of England, bring these these places back. Yeah, closing into, the gaps, bridging the divides, yeah, the spatial inequality. There's a particular, isn't there, poignancy to working class people growing up in a, in a town or a city whose greatest days are obviously in the past. It's yeah. just hard. 
It's not. You walk past that giant factory, which in America was the only reason your town existed, and it's bankrupt. Exactly. So then you have this awful opioid. You have this this the seeking of oblivion in these places, the collapse of families and communities. It's it's incredibly moving in a way, and 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 the fact that we only had Trump to tell those people that he cared about them is a real indictment, I think, of our elites. Uh, at least no one else was saying it quite clearly. But it is, and I mean, you know, I mean, a couple of the books that you know preceded, you know, mine. Hilby Ergy, J.D. Vance, and there was Tara Westover. I mean, here in the in the in the U.S. on Educated, they didn't give you. I mean, they were incredible stories. And J.D. Vance's is very much Hillbilly Ergy, right in the um, whole frame of what we're talking about here. But they didn't give you a kind of sense of what you could do about it. And I kind of, you know, really felt here there was more to the story than just these, you know, exceptional individual experiences. Because it is this sort of hollowing out. It's the, there's a there's a combination here of political processes, you know, socioeconomic developments, globalization for sure. You know that has really well, we're all now recognizing the problems bringing China into the WTO. Oh yeah. Um, in 2012, not thinking. I mean, there are so many things that have gone wrong here, and that it should have been thought all the way through. But the problem is, there's no quick fix. No. And what um, Trump was um, offering was a quick fix. Me, and then you know I'll sort it out. And of course. It's very difficult, as Biden has learned with Build Back Better and you know, the infrastructure bill and all the promises you know that he made when he came into office. Very difficult. And this is a multi-generational path outward out of all of this um, present uh, well, problems that we're facing. It's not going to be fixed in four years, eight years. This is we've got a long haul here. And how do you sell that? That's the problem. Do you and I bear some responsibility for this. When I say you and I, I don't mean necessarily you and me personally, but our class. I mean, we are... Well, I mean, maybe we do. You know, well, right? You know, like well no, we, we, yeah. we, we grew up in yeah. communities, right? We were individualists. Yeah. And with our own pluck and skill and abilities and luck and all the rest of it, got ourselves out of there. Yeah, and we didn't go back. Yeah, And we didn't we go back. On. And, yeah. and when and I left... About when, that, I, that, yeah, yeah. Exactly. when I left to America, I, it did... There was a sense among people I'd left behind that I kind of sold out, that I had not stuck yeah. with my country and my community, and, and it, especially, and that was, it was difficult because I, I, I don't, I love where I grew up. I love those people, and when I go back to the town I was from, you know, my family's still there. It's struggling. It's, it's, it's already not struggling the way that other places are struggling. But it, part of, part of the consequences of the liberation of people like you and me and talents and ability in that sense is that is, is other people left behind and the jobs that are there don't have the meaning that they used to i mean being the local right. baker for example i always my mom used to send me up to the local baker shop bake their own bread have a list you give me this loaf and that loaf bring it home i knew who they were now that person is a is a greeter at the at the, at the supermarket you know, yeah. all those little roles, those little meaningful roles that don't require education particularly. They require capacity to understand what's going on, but they don't require advanced education. I mean, this is my main criticism, my main objection to your book, really, was that I'm not sure education solves it all. I think education can sometimes make things worse because it will actually right. intensify the inequalities because there, there are simple, some limits on people. we all born with different natural abilities and there's a, you know, not everyone's going to be able to be a professor. Not everyone's... But there's great dignity and worth in, in manual labor, in skills, in crafts, in trades, and in working for your local community, feeling needed. That's, that's, that, well, that's what you just touched on. It's that education to help you get 
the crafts, the skills and the ability to work for your community that becomes key. And, you know, perhaps I didn't emphasize that quite as much in the book you know, as I should do, because that's something I've been thinking about. You know, vocational schools, lifelong learning, you know, further education, the further educational college system that we have in the United Kingdom, but also in the United States. You know, that ability to retool. I mean, that was something that my dad really missed out on. He went down the mines at 14. The only certificate he had from school was of good penmanship. That didn't really kind of get you anywhere unless, you know, back in the day you were, you know, maybe you could have had a job writing out wedding invitations or something. He used to joke about that sometimes. But yeah. he had no qualification apart from on the job. And for a mines, that was okay because somebody would vouch you and say, oh, that Alfie was a good lad. Yeah, he's a good worker. You know, you can hire him. But then when he moved out of there, because the mines had closed down and the steelworks and the brickworks, you know, they had no one to vouch for him. The only job was being a hospital porter. And there was no opportunity. By then, he's well into his 30s and he's got a family. He can't go back to school. And there's no night school. Now, you know, later on in the 80s, there does start to be this retraining. And part of it, you know, you have the technical colleges, you have the open university, you have people later on who, you know, are able to take advantage of that in the same, you know, here in the United States. We have to make that possible for everyone. You know, I you don't want to call just... training or selling, but you've got to give people, you know, the abilities to, you know, get something additional and not get themselves into enormous amounts of debt. Because it's actually an investment for all of us, not just something that has to be the responsibility of the individual, because we can see the way that our larger society is suffering, you know, from that problem of so many people being denied, you know, the opportunity to reskill, you know, to say become a solar panel engineer or look, we've got huge demand for plumbers and electricians. And, you know, as we ramp out and move out of, you know, the COVID pandemic phase, you know, how to deal with this new world of, you know, artificial intelligence. And, you know, there's lots of different ways in which we can tackle this. Yeah, but I think not valorizing the college degree as the ultimate yes i agree I, qualification I agree for you. living I, is 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 a good cultural shift to value i mean yeah. one thing that the epidemic kind of showed us i think rather brutally is that you know you may sit there sitting on your laptop creating value somehow someone's bringing you your food someone's transporting this around someone yeah. is running the train Absolutely. someone is keep and these people are yeah. the lowest paid people in our society and they deserve yeah more and and are absolutely and it's and it's that value of work and you know that was what my you know dad knows i've been trying to emphasize this in some of the other talks in the books you know whether we need to you know and actually as we've all moved out of or start to move out of cities local communities are becoming vibrant again yeah because of work and we mustn't then you know go into this whole phase of further gentrification but also then figuring out how you bring everyone into these communities. Local farmers markets, for example, are giving people you know, jobs. In my hometown of Bishop Auckland now, there's been quite a lot of investment in different you know, tourist uh, opportunities, which seems a bit bizarre. But in any case, there's the Auckland Don't project. run down Bishop Auckland as a tourist destination. Well, I know, I'm I mean... just basically saying it just seems bizarre in the context of how it looked in the 70s and right, 80s. Right, but right, now, right, right. you know, there's actually a lot of opportunity to turn the beautiful countryside and some of the around it and the historic sites. Now the big old so smokestack industries and the slag heaps and the old mine tailings have gone into something else. And it seems bizarre in the past, but actually this is the future. Yeah. You know, my dad used to say you can't eat scenery, but actually you can. You can do farm to table. You can um, have farmer's markets. You can have tourist activities. You just need local investment and local assets, you know, to build on. And County Durham is making a bid to be right now the UK City of Culture for 2025. I mean, it's a region rather than a city, but it's trying to play upon all of these strengths of 
cultural and educational uh, opportunity that it maintained during the darkest times. You know, the fact we, you know, we, we're the furthest out past the Roman Empire. We're just short of Hadrian's Wall. We have some real gems of museums and ecclesiastical history. The Venerable Vede, the father of the, you know, the English language. There's all kinds of history that can be you know, pulled together and make into a whole to bring people um, into the region. And in the United States too, you know, you think about the Lehigh Valley, Carbon County in Pennsylvania, Jim Thorpe, you know, one of the places I write about in the book that have turned themselves into tourist destinations. Bethlehem, Pennsylvania has turned the old steelworks into conference center, you know, for example, casinos, you know, have kind of, you know, grown up in different places that, you know, the United States are very, you know, specific thing. But you have these local development councils that are turning places around. Old mines and industrial sites have become tourist attractions here as well. We just have to really think how to invest in communities that, you know, build back better on the national level also needs to be brought down to the local community level. Fiona, it's been lovely talking with you. Thanks for your time. You're the second person with an accent like this on the show. The other one was Dominic Cummings. <laughs> oh, oh, a person from County Durham. <laughs> yes, I know. I'd love to get you and Dom together for dinner. That would be fun. He's a trip. I mean, it turns out he's a trip, of course. I mean, he's and fun he to talk Barnard to. Castle on the map, thanks to his trip for his eye salt. Not really. I mean, I grew up near Barnard Castle. People were thrilled. And it actually was one of my cousins who spotted him <laughs> in Barnard Castle. It was? Yeah, well, one of their friends, you know, my cousin was like, hey, Dominic Cummings was spotted in Barnard Castle. For listeners who are not fully aware of the background of that story, Dominic Cummings was on the podcast. You should definitely listen to the show. It was really interesting. But it was one of Johnson's key, he created the Johnson administration and won the election for Johnson, essentially, but was naughty during COVID and, and did a broker rule and drove where he shouldn't have to this place near where Fiona grew up and, and then it became famous. Meanwhile, it turns out everyone in Downing Street was getting totally pissed every night. Fiona, all best wishes to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, um, Andrew. Thank you for having me on. We have some great pleasure. people coming up. We have Frank Fukuyama coming up. We have Nick oh, Christakis. We have we have a whole bunch of people who are really, we're really psyched to get. The, the quality of our guests is really fantastic, but I think it's because they know. You guys who listen to us are among the smartest and most open-minded people in the, on the planet for which we're most grateful. Thank you for listening. If you listen to this podcast every week and have not become a member of The Dish, please do. It, it, it enables us to do what we do. Stop being a free rider. There are, I know there are over 100,000 of you doing this and only a, you know, a fraction of you are actually paying. So please, um, if you want more conversations like this, please contribute. And can't wait to see you all next week. Thanks again, Fiona. Thanks, Andrew. That's great. Thank you.